almost 8 billion people in the world today, and only one-third would call themselves Christians. That means more than 5 billion people don't know Jesus and are in need of salvation through faith in Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus commissioned his followers to take the gospel to those who don't know him in all nations. At Acts 29, we believe that to be passionate about this great commission is to be passionate about church planting, which is why we plant churches worldwide. My neighborhood here in St. John's, like any other neighborhood that you might come across in Canada, it's quiet, there's a lot of families, and people just go about their business like everyone else. But under the surface, it's a community that's hurting. It's a community that doesn't know how to trust the church. It's a community that doesn't know what gospel-centered community is. And this is why we're planting Kilbride Community Church, because this is an area in desperate need of gospel-centered community. Because as deep as the hurt is, Christ's mercy, grace, and compassion is deeper. Jesus is the answer to a question many are searching for, even if they don't know it.東京都府中市三鷹市は都心から20キロに位置し、東京の人口は約1400万人です。人口の約95%しかクリスチャンがいないこの国で、人口の約95%の人々は一度も人生でクリスチャンと出会わずに、イエスを紹介されずに亡く
Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Um, happy Easter. And we can still say that. It's, it's, it, the resurrection still happened. The tomb is still empty. He is risen. risen. All right. There, there we go. So um, uh, in all seriousness, we are in the church calendar, a time of the year that is Eastertide. And so we are going to continue to celebrate the resurrection. There are more people that need to hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, on this particular Sunday, in light of the video you just saw, um, there are over 700 churches coming together on this day that are part of this church planning network that by God's grace, and uh, we have the privilege to be part of. And so you may be very familiar with that if you've been part of Crosspoint for a while, or maybe this is something that's new to you, but just want you to know we have a heart for church planting, um, and that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. That has been people that have been trained up here and then sent out to plant churches like down in South Florida and in the Atlanta area and literally up in Tennessee. Like God, by his grace, has allowed us the privilege of that. Also, uh, anytime you give financially to this church, a minimum of 10% goes to church planting. So directly to church plants, some that does go to Acts 29 to help further uh, this mission. And so thank you for being part of that. And so this morning, I wanna take a, a moment as part of our pastoral prayer to pray specifically on this day for this church planting uh, Sunday to thank God for what he is doing, the things that he's done, the ways that he's at work all around the world, but also to pray that God would raise up more laborers to send out into uh, the harvest. Hear these words out of Luke chapter 10. Jesus says this. There's this account that's given in Luke 10. It says, and after this, the Lord appointed 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So I want to take a moment to pray in earnest that the Lord would send laborers out, um, that that would include us here as we minister and seek to be missionaries in the context God has put us. For some, it may mean going with a future church plant. I wanna pray specifically as well. Um, I feel like one of the things that in talking with a lot of church planters um, and hearing some guys that have even far more experience, one of the things that has shifted over the last few years is that there was a time, and we experienced this, like we didn't even have to actively recruit people to come church plant. It felt like God just kept bringing us people that were interested in that, and we got to help train them up. But that sort of pipeline, if you will, like is a bit more barren and dry, and so part of what we need to be praying in earnest is that God would raise up like gospel preachers who want to go out and plant churches. And so very specifically, like we have been praying and want to continue to pray that God would send somebody here to us as Crosspoint that we can train up and invest in to be, to be sent out to go plant uh, a, a church. And so I would invite you to, to pray that with me. Uh, we all have a role uh, to play. Maybe you're here today and you're like, oh, I didn't think I was going to get called into church planning. Well, neither did I, all right? And the God, God had other plans, all right? Um, and so sometimes that's just how he works, and it's amazing. Um, I mean, I wasn't going to be in Orlando. I definitely wasn't going to be planning a church, and well, looky here, all right? So, um, but so grateful for what the Lord has done. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you uh, again that the tomb is empty. Jesus, we thank you for this new creation, uh, this 
that it just bursts forth right here, right now. Um, we thank you that there is a resurrection story to tell, and by your grace, there are resurrection stories, God, gathered here in this room, and we want to see more resurrection stories take place. And so, Lord, we would pray for a movement of church plants, God, not only within Acts 29, but just around the world and other networks and denominations. God, uh, we want to celebrate the gospel going forth. God, it's not about our particular group or tribe or anything. God, we want to see more worship of you happen. And so, Jesus, we want to pray and join you in this, this prayer, this earnest prayer that laborers would be raised up, that there is a harvest out there. And we are praying, Lord, that you would raise up laborers to send out into the harvest. And so we would pray that here in our Central Florida area, God, that you would continue to use us as a, as a church that has been planted some years ago now. But God, may we not lose that, that missional fervency and, and edge and desire to see men, women, and children come to know you. And God, by your grace, would you be at work in the, the churches that are literally being planted all over the world? Would you bring encouragement today to the church planters that are literally getting up and, and, and preaching and proclaiming your gospel truth, seeing the kingdom advance against the kingdom of light, advance against the kingdom of darkness. And there are days that certainly can be discouraging, but Lord, we trust that you are at work. And so we thank you for your grace. And Lord, we pray um, that in your kindness and your mercy, we ask God in your timing that you would bring us a church planter, uh, that you would bring to us somebody that can invest here for a season to be sent out to go and plant. That could be somewhere in Central Florida. It could be somewhere in the U.S. It could be somewhere around the world. God, uh, we hold that very open-handedly, but we would ask that you would use us. Lord, we want to be about your kingdom purposes. And so I thank you for the ways that we have gotten to play a small part in your, uh, just your redemptive plan. Um, God, you certainly, you don't need us. Um, you didn't need this church to, to get started, um, but you chose uh, to work in and through us, um, that you allow us the privilege of participation in your kingdom. You allow us the, the privilege of being about this work of making disciples who make disciples so that churches might plant more churches literally around the world. And so, God, we ask that you would do it for your glory and for our great joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to let you know, too, with, with this, um, on your way out today, there's a number of different resources on the table in the narthex, but also out by the, the Next Steps table. Um, there's some brochures, some pamphlets. You can pick up one of these. Um, if you're like, I love stickers and free pens, there's a few of those. So first come, first serve uh, that, that are out there, um, but would encourage you. And if, you need, if we run out for some reason, please let me know. Um, but we would love to have you learn more about this. Um, as well as one additional resource, this morning we start a brand new uh, sermon series. I'll explain a bit more of that in just a moment. But again, thanks for gathering. Thanks for bringing the church into uh, this place. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church uh, into your home, your living room, wherever you happen to be tuning in from. But uh, we are keeping this resurrection theme going. I mean, the reality is the tomb is empty. We want to keep celebrating that. And so we're starting a brand new series this morning called Rise. 
And it's gonna be a journey over the next 10 weeks or so through the book of 1 Thessalonians. All right, this great letter, and I'll give you more background on that. But one resource that we have for you this morning as well, on your way in, if you didn't pick one of these up last week, there's these scripture journals. Um, they're out on the table. You can grab uh, one of those. It just It's the text of 1 Thessalonians, um, and there's space to, uh, to take notes, um, be a resource, hopefully that you can use, and so I'd invite you to, to grab one of those. So as we get into this this morning, as we start this new series, in light of the empty tomb, and as we think about even this mission that God has called us to, I want to pose a, a question, and it's one I, I likely think, I, like I know the answer to, but I want us to consider this for a moment as we think about the time and the place where we live. And it's not by accident. Like God in his design has you and me here, all right, in 2023. In the particular city you live, the neighborhood you live in, the school you go to, the job you work, like nothing is by accident. But let me ask you this. Do you ever feel this sense of like, I feel a little lost. I feel a little disoriented in this cultural moment. Do you feel perhaps a level of maybe just anxiety or even as you hear about churches being planted, do you sometimes find yourself doubting like, all right, like I, maybe you're somebody here this morning, you're like, I believe this, but like, is anybody else like new going to believe this? Do you sometimes find yourself just not even sure like how to navigate like this moment? Like I was born in 1976, so you can do the math on my, my age for me if you'd like, but um, uh, so I don't really remember much of the, the 70s, but as I study things and read, and sociologists would say that even in our sort of cultural context, that is America, right, the reality is there hasn't been a time of this much like uncertainty and disruption and tumultuous sort of times since the late 60s and into the 70s. And so for whatever reason, God in, in his providence has us here. And if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, it means he has hand-selected you and me and us to be a church together in this moment. But if we're honest, man, it, it is hard to navigate. There's, there's so many tensions, right? There's so much disruption. There's so many things that, that are happening, right? There's so much tribalism that's taking place. There, there's so much animosity. There can be lots of confusion. And here's the unfortunate thing. It's not just, well, we can at least say as the church. That's an out there problem, but we're never divided, and we always have perfect unity, and we all keep it about the gospel, and we don't make it about our life. The reality is, is it's affected us as a church. And so we feel this sense of weightiness, and I think this, this confusion. And so how do we navigate that? Now, if you've ever found yourself lost, right, like actually like don't know where, where to go, um, it is obviously helpful, all right, thankfully today, pretty much at any point, you just take your phone out and you're just like, look at the GPS and it tells you where you are. And there are those things that, that are helpful. Or maybe you can remember, I think they still have these, all right? But it, maybe you're at a mall or you're at a theme park, all right? And not only do you look, if you're lost or you don't know where to go, or you're looking for a store or you're looking for some attraction, some ride, and you're not sure where it is in the, in the theme park, right? You'll find that kind of giant sign. It will have there a particular map, which is helpful, like you need the map. But just seeing the map alone doesn't actually help because you actually need three words on the map. You know what those words are, right? You are here, 
right? Like we need that pointed out to us on the map, all right? And friends, what we're going to be doing together over the next 10 weeks as we dive into 1 Thessalonians is it's more than even just a map for a season of like tumultuousness and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things going on. It also more specifically helps orient us. Like the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit is writing this to a church that's experienced something destabilizing, some disruption, some things that are going on. And similar to us, right? Things that we feel and we don't even know how to make sense of it and we maybe just get cynical or jaded or overwhelmed or however we respond to it. But this letter is gonna help orient us to say, hey, you are here. Like, here's the time and place, not only that, but like the age that you live in. When I was in seminary, there was a phrase that particularly anytime we studied the New Testament letters of Paul, all right, there was this phrase that our professors would use over and over again to the point that they would actually joke like, hey, you know, every time we use this phrase, another angel gets his wings and we get a bonus, right? Like that was kind of the, the running joke. And the phrase was this, that to talk about the you are here moment, like where do we actually live? Not just in a geographic sense, but like what age are we living in? Like what is true? What changed in light of the resurrection of Jesus? And the phrase is this, perhaps you've heard of this phrase, that we live, the you are here is it would be telling us, and First Thessalonians is going to tell us, you live in this space, we live in this space, we inhabit this age that is the already and the not yet. See, another angel has got its wings, it's amazing, right? The already and the not yet. And the idea here is that there are things that got ushered in with the empty tomb, like this new age, this new creation that is burst forth, and it's not just a promise of someday off in the future. Like it starts right here, right now. This is why N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, would say it this way. He says, friends, it's time to wake up. You've been asleep long enough. The sun is shining and there's a wonderful day out there. So wake up and get a life. The message of Easter then is neither that God once did a spectacular miracle, but then decided not to do many others, nor that there is a blissful life after death to look forward to. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now, like right now, invited to belong to it. So there's this sense of the already, like new creations, resurrection stories, like it's happening. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, you're living out a resurrection story. You have been saved. And yet the not yet part is that there's gonna be this ultimate like sanctification and this ultimate salvation and glorification, meaning we know that things are not yet the way God intends them to be. So yes, I'm saved, but I still sin. Yes, I have a new identity in Christ, and yet over and over and over again, I forget that. My guess is you do as well. And so this book is going to help us think through the implications of this moment like what is already true, but also living in this tension. Maybe a way to think about it this way, I've heard some refer to it as you think about just seasons. I know we don't get those in Florida, so just imagine with me for a moment, right? December 21st, 2023, it's the first day of winter. 
Now, if you've lived here longer than like 24 hours, you know that that calendar date might arrive some, a few months from now, and likely it'll be still like 90 degrees here. So it will, on the one hand, be declared it is winter. But those of you that have lived in places that actually have winter will be like, really? This is winter, huh? Oh, Christmas Day in shorts, except this last year, which was glorious, but that's an aside. Anyway, um, so... It will declare, like, we will officially be in winter, but the reality is the likelihood is like, well, but not yet. It won't actually feel like it. We know that to be true. Or you think about those that have studied and they write about the great wars and the historians that record things. You study World War II and you study and you learn about the Allied forces, what has come to be referred to as D-Day, right? The Allied forces arriving. And it was this decisive moment, like the war Turned. Really, many would say, like, it is in that moment that victory was achieved, but many months went by before there was any sort of peace treaties that were signed. The war did not end, even though something decisive had happened. Friends, that's a bit of like what it feels like to live in the already in the not yet. It's like, oh, all these things have been accomplished, and yet there's this tension, and we sometimes wonder how we're to live. This theologian, um, Oscar Coleman, wrote about it this way regarding the, the kingdom and the advancement. He says, the decisive battle in a war may already have occurred in a relatively early stage of the war, and yet it, the war still continues. And although the decisive effect of that battle is perhaps not recognized by all, it nevertheless already means victory. But the war must still be carried on for an undefined time until victory day, Precisely this is the situation of which the New Testament is conscious as a result of the recognition of the new division of time. We live in a new age, a new division of time, okay? The revelation consists precisely in the fact of the proclamation that that event on the cross, together with the resurrection which followed, was the already concluded decisive battle. Jesus has won. The tomb is empty. There is a victory. And yet we live in this time where we, that is not, we don't feel the full effect of that. And we need help. And God in his grace has given us the scriptures. In particular, he's given us the letter of 1 Thessalonians. So let's look at that. Um, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. So there are Bibles in the pews this morning. Uh, you can also scan the QR code, which will bring up a little menu where you can click sermon notes. Um, the text will be there, anything I put up on the screen. And some of you just got excited. You're like, okay, I know that was the intro, but we got one verse. Like This, this is going to be short, right? That's cute. All right. Anyway, um, we're going to go, we're going to start here, but we do need to go and look because in the book of Acts, we also get the story of how this church came about. So we will look briefly at that. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. So here is how this great letter begins, and we'll look at a few key words in this together. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so as we think about what we're called to be as the church and how to live and how to navigate in this moment, let's look at the power of the resurrection. I want to look this morning at how the resurrection, like how it continues to uh, expand. Like it, it leads to this expansion. It leads to this movement. It leads to the kingdom advancing, like this whole new age that's been ushered in. 
And then we'll look at, as we get into the book of Acts for just a moment, we'll look at this great disruption, that this conflict, there's this really, it leads to some uncertain times. And we'll conclude by looking at how the resurrection brings the stability, it brings this position that, that we have. And so first, let's look at the first part of verse one, where we see this expansion, all right? And so really what is fascinating, all right, we have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. These three men are all represent individual resurrection stories. And we could tell stories of all of them. I want to just focus in on for a moment. Like Paul is the one that God has appointed who's kind of leading this charge. He's the lead church planter in Thessalonica in this particular city. And what's so fascinating and how we see this, all right, I know this is a very basic image to put up here, but like just keep this in mind. Like the gospel, like Jesus shows himself to Paul's. We'll look at his story in just a moment. The resurrected Jesus, and he brings transformation. And then we tell that story. Like, you're here because this has been playing out for a couple thousand years now, right? Like somebody told somebody who told somebody, and that somebody eventually told you. And now we have this opportunity to be disciples who make disciples. And so it starts with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And so if you know anything about Paul's story, he's also referred to as Saul, he would have been the least likely person. If you were like, hey, who's going to help lead this new Jesus movement? Nobody would have picked Paul. Why? Because he was actually hell-bent on destroying the church. In fact, he was the one who was seeing to its persecution. He's the one who presided over Stephen being martyred, being stoned to death. And Paul didn't watch that and think, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. He's like, good. We need to see more of this happening. But then he meets the resurrected Jesus and everything changes. And so later on in the book of Acts, he's telling again his story. He loved to tell his story. He never got over the fact. Look at how he describes it in Acts chapter 22. He says this, I persecuted this way, what the early church was referred to, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's, he actually thought he was doing the Lord's work. We got to stop this way. And he thought that they had. This Jesus who had shown up and said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And the early followers so identified with this Jesus that they referred to as the way. He's like, we got we to get rid of that didn't believe in the resurrected Jesus until he encountered him. And he says this as he continues his story, as I, was, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me, saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. What an incredible moment. And what, amongst many things that are incredible in that, Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Like Jesus so identifies with his people because of this union that we have. As Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, right? Like we are in Christ Jesus. 
Like there's such close identification that what was done to the early church, Jesus is like, that's an affront to me. You're doing that against me. So whatever it is that you face right now, if you face like mockery and ridicule and people that think you're just the most ridiculous person in the world for, for believing and worshiping Jesus and even being here th- this morning, know that, that Jesus takes that personally on your account. Like you're not alone in that. And then we get to verse 10 of Paul telling a story. And I said, well, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise. He's like, rise, like get up. There's this resurrection story that's playing out now for Paul and go into Damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. So it starts with this man having an encounter with the risen Lord that leads to his own resurrection story. And then Paul writes, right, to the church of the Thessalonians that what started with one man's encounter, that one man by the Spirit of God was led to a particular city that we'll talk about more in just a moment. But a church, a community was formed. This, the, the word there, this ecclesia, which means that they're the called out ones. There's this assembly, this gathering. And now there's all these people who have been called out, invited to this whole new age in which they're invited to live and to worship Jesus, who's ushered in this, this new reality. So that's what's taking place. A church has been formed. Like, that's a miracle. You realize that? It's incredible what happened, and Paul then writes to them. And so for just a moment, we'll look at more details as we get into this book, but there's this particular city. It's a city at the time of this writing that most scholars believe had about 100,000 or so people, so a relatively large city given the time. This is one of Paul's first earliest letters, actually, that were written. All right, And this particular city, here's a, a map. You can see kind of the, the red arrow. Um, not that any of that means anything to you, all right? but this is showing um, Paul's travels. But it was a significant, it had a significant role even in the Roman Empire. It was part of this greater area called Macedonia. Paul traveled and planted a lot of churches there, places like Philippi. But this was the, really was the, the Roman capital of Macedonia. It was Thessalonica. And so it's got over 100,000 people. It's got all this worship of like the Greco-Roman gods and goddesses. We'll look at that more next week. There's also a large enough population of Jewish men and women, that there's a synagogue that we'll, we'll learn of, as the book of Acts tells us. And there's worship taking place there of the emperor. Like there's this emperor worship where what was believed and what you had to say to just keep the peace, Caesar is Lord. And now you've got this group of Jesus followers. They're like, it isn't Caesar that's Lord. It's Jesus that is Lord. And we're going to see what that leads to. But it's in this place. It's in this particular city. And what would have been significant about it, not only as you, as you see its proximity to a harbor and the way, obviously, like it was, it was a great spot. There's a lot of wealth in the city because of its proximity to the water and for trade. It also was along the Ignatian Way. And so out of Rome, trade could happen as it flowed east. But also... Not only did trade take place, ideas, philosophies, worldviews traveled the Ignatian way. And so Paul travels that same route and begins to help plant churches along this particular way to call people to experience the power of the resurrection. Here's the account 
that is written in the book of Acts. Acts 17 tells the story of the starting of the church in Thessalonica. The first four verses said this, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. What does he do? He goes in, and those words there that you see kind of in that yellow gold color. Let me just unpack that for a moment. To, to say he reasoned means he went in and there was a dialogue that took place. He shared from the scriptures. He invited questions. There was a back and forth that took place. Like if you're new to all of this, trying to figure it out, like the church should be the safest place to ask those sort of questions. Let, let's, let's discuss these things. And then Paul, it tells us, he explained the scriptures he explained why it was necessary. That, that word actually means like opening, right? So last week on Easter Sunday, we looked at Luke chapter 24, how Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with these two guys, these two disciples. They don't recognize Jesus at first. They don't know that it's the resurrected Lord. And then at one point we get this description, their eyes were opened. It's that same word that's being used here. Like Paul is trying to help their eyes open, which only happens by the power of the spirits. It's actually the same word that Luke would, would use speaking of the birth of Christ and that the womb of Mary was opened. Like it takes a supernatural work of God to open our eyes. And this says, and then proving that it was necessary, it just begins to, to showcase to them, hey, the one that came, like this Jesus, it was necessary for him to die. This is the resurrection story. We saw it last week in Luke 24, while Jesus showcases throughout the totality of the scriptures how the Messiah was going to have to die. Somebody had to pay for the sins of humanity, but that there would be this resurrection. So Paul tells that same story. He doesn't need to make anything new up. He doesn't say, hey, how can I improve upon the Jesus story? Like, how can I make it more interesting? He's like, I'm just gonna tell the story because it's amazing. And we get to do the same thing. And so there's this resurrection expansion. But as we continue, look with me. We're gonna look at where this goes. There is this disruption, all right? There is this moment for this new church that's gathered where things are going amazingly well. And then suddenly from their vantage point, it feels like things come to a screeching halt, and so here's how the story progresses. Acts 17 tells us this in verse five, verses five to nine. It says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. So they're just looking for guys that basically are sitting around. They're not doing anything. They're like, hey, come be part of this, all right? And eventually, enough, there's enough emotion. Things are heightened enough that people don't actually even know what's going on, but there's this riot that is beginning to take place. It set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, all right, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. They thought like Paul and his companions were there with Jason, all right? And when they could not find them, they still dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They have no idea the truth that they're communicating. Isn't that beautiful? Like, yeah, the world is being turned upside down, or rather, the world is upside down, and Jesus is turning it right side up again. Jesus is setting everything right, and Paul is saying, here's what it looks like to follow the way. Here's what it looks like to find life. 
And as it continues, it says in verse seven, Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They know what card to play and they know, oh, if we threaten, if we say there's a threat against Rome, it's what got Jesus killed and they're trying the same tactic again. Maybe we can get these guys killed because there's only one Lord and it's Caesar or so they thought. And they're saying that there's this treason and the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They're like, we can't have this happen and when they had taken, it says, then, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So there's a threat to the powers of the day. There's a threat to what they thought was a stability of that city, which was actually re- no real stability at all. What they needed for life was Jesus. And then verse 10 tells us this, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So just think for a moment here. It tells us that Paul, on three consecutive Sabbaths, he goes in. Scholars believe that he was likely there longer than just three weeks, but it probably was maybe the two to three month time period. And so, man, you're seeing like these people come to faith. You're seeing resurrection stories happen. But we have to admit, like, this is still a very seemingly, from our vantage point, kind of fragile situation. You got this fledgling group that they're trying to figure out, right? What does it look like to follow Jesus? As we'll look at more closely in the weeks ahead, it is a story of people who've prior to this, they've either been caught up in the legalism of Judaism or they've been engaged in emperor worship or they've been caught up in worshiping the gods and goddesses of the Greco-Roman world, right? And now they're trying to sort through, okay, well, if I'm following Jesus, what's the implication for my life? It's not that unlike the time where we live and you become a follower of Jesus and now you're like, well, how do I think through sexuality and finances and work? Like, how how does the resurrection speak to all of those things? And guess what? Thessalonians is gonna help us unpack all of that and understand it. And so it's very disruptive. And now this church though, that's excited to learn these things, you have to imagine, right? Their leaders are now gone. Like middle of the night, they're escorted out of the city for their safety and they have to be wondering, like, What's up? Like, why did Paul show up? I thought he was going to be with us longer. But Paul is a good pastor, writes to them. Yes, because he cares about them, but ultimately because he wants to point them to the truth. At the end of the day, Paul's not their savior. The church isn't built on Paul. Paul's not the the rock, right? It's like Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the one. And so he's like, let me remind you of what is true. They're facing uncertainty, and Paul is going to remind them of what is true because it is so easy to get caught up. Even the way there's, it's understandable that they would have felt some anxiety. They would have felt maybe some panic. They're probably wondering what's happening. And what they felt is not that different from what we feel in our cultural moment where things feel very unstable at times. I read a story this past week. Some of you may be familiar uh, with this, but it was a bit of the, the history of this. This is the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, probably you've traveled across that. If you've ever been to New York City or you've seen that, or at least you've heard of it, right? Um, at the time that it was built, it was the largest suspension uh, bridge that had ever been built. And apparently it was regarded as like one of the, like the largest structures like in the Western Hemisphere. Like it was just massively large, Okay. Um, And as it was being constructed, and it was nearing its opening, it was set to open in 1883. There were people legitimately, they were like, 
is this thing going to work? Like, is this really going to, like, hold the weight of lots and lots of people traversing there over the East River? Like, is this actually going to play out? And so apparently, the way the story goes is that P.T. Barnum of, like, Barnum and Bailey, like, literally, they brought him in to, to escort, like, elephants across the bridge to be like, hey, like, unless you're planning on eating a ton this week, like, if they made it across, like, you're going to be good, right? Like, and so they did that. And so for the first week, it opened. And there was no issues. And everything worked. And people were beginning to gain some confidence in it. Like, oh, yes, it's massive. But like, we have every reason to feel safe. And then a week after it opened, New York Times, you can go still read this in their archives. A woman was making her way down this wooden stairwell to kind of an exit from the bridge. And her foot, she slipped on one of the steps and she fell down. And as she fell, a, a person that was near her screamed out. And that person heard the scream and that person yelled, the bridge is collapsing. And within seconds, the, what they say was maybe roughly a thousand people or so that were there on, on that bridge at, at that particular time were just thrown into utter chaos. And the panic and the anxiety and the fear, it began to spread like a virus amongst the people. And the New York Times reported that on that particular day, 12 people were trampled to death because everyone thought the bridge was collapsing and they were all scurrying, trying to get off the bridge. Some seven people were injured to the point of like significantly changing their life. They survived, but just barely. And some 23 other people were severely injured. Why? Because in that moment, there was this anxiousness and it began to just flood the people and it went through them and it just began to spread. And that is the reality. I think that can happen at times. When we look out over the, the world and the cultural landscape, if we're honest with ourselves, I think sometimes we can get caught up in it. We, we get fearful or anxious, right? There can be panic maybe that sets in and we wonder like, how is the church even gonna survive in this time? And let's see what Paul does in this brilliant opening one verse. Look at what Paul does because they likely were facing some anxiety. They were likely facing some panic, wondering like, what's gonna happen to our church now? And Paul says these words. And so we'll conclude with this. There is this, because of the resurrection, there is a position, there is a security. In this moment of destabilization, Paul is saying, I want you to know that you are secure. So look at what he does, friends. So again, he writes and he says, to the church of the Thessalonians, and then this little tiny preposition, this little word, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's like, yeah, I had to flee the city. Yeah, Jason had a rough go of it. Yeah, there are these things that are happening. I can't promise you that nothing hard is ever going to happen again. Like there's going to be persecution. There are going to be things that are difficult. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be mocked. Not promising that you just kind of skip through life, but here's what I want you to know. You're the church in Thessalonica. You're the church of the Thessalonians. And he's writing to us today the same words. Like you're a church here in Central Florida, in Altamont Springs, in Maitland, in Castleberry, wherever it is that you're from, right? It's like you're this church here. And he says this, you are in God the Father. That means he has got you. You are rooted in, you are grounded in. There's this protection. You are in the loving arms of the Father and he has got you. And more than that as well, he says, and you're in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, I'm not gonna lose any of them. 
And so, yes, things may feel tumultuous. Yes, you may feel lost and confused, and I feel it too, and just wondering like what we're supposed to do. But the resurrection stories continue to happen. The church continues to advance. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. Jesus didn't say, oh, the gates of hell will not prevail, except, oh, shoot, I didn't think about the 21st century in North America. I'm not sure how that's going to work. No, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Why? Because you're in God the Father. You think about that, the protection that he has. And the reason we can be in God the Father is because Jesus was cast out. That Jesus there on that cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cast out. He was exiled so that we could be brought in, so we could be rooted in, that we could be enveloped. You have a place of ultimate security, right? Like parents, sometimes you're like, I'm going to provide a protective bubble for my children. We can't really do that, try as we might, right? But God, in his protective bubble, he's got us. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect, but it does mean that even death doesn't have the final say. That when you are in God the Father, when you have a new identity in Christ, it means there's this whole new resurrection era that's been ushered in. Friends, that's what we're part of. The book and the letter of 1 Thessalonians is going to remind us of that, point us to you are here. You are in this place where new creation has happened because of the work of Christ. That's why Paul would write, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, not just someday, right now, He or she is a new creation. Jesus ushered in the new creation, and now we get to be part of that. The old has passed away. Behold. Think about that. Behold, friends, he's saying, marvel at the fact that the new has come. May this letter help us marvel at the fact that not just individually, but collectively, we are a church And God wants to work in and through us in this time and in this place for his glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our deep just gladness and joy. Like, that's the story that we get to be part of. And then Paul ends with this. So grace to you and peace. It's all by God's grace, the unmerited favor of God. What leads to stability then is grace. Out of grace flows this peace, this flourishing, this wholeness, this delight. Everything is God intended to be. That's the story that he's writing. That's the story we're part of. And 1 Thessalonians is going to help us be oriented and understand what is our role to play right here, right now. The resurrection is still happening. There are still resurrection stories yet to be told. By God's grace, we get to be part of it. So let me pray for us. The worship team will come back up and and lead us as we continue to respond. But take some time trusting the Spirit has led you in ways. What do you need to repent of? Let's remember the gospel and let's continue to rejoice together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness, your grace toward us. Thank you for revealing yourself in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, we thank you. Thank you that because of your work, we are in God the Father. Thank you that we have this ultimate place of security. And I pray that that reality wouldn't lead to a passivity, but would instead propel us forward to be bold, to see more disciples made so that there might be more worship of you, God. So we ask that you would work in and through this particular letter. We thank you that in your grace, you've given it to us. Please instruct us. Please challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. 
Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And may we behold, may we marvel at Jesus more and more. So God, be honored now as we continue to worship and may we experience a deep and abiding joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.